Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello, friends. My name is Stephen. Welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. This is episode two of our four-part series called The Last Word. Tent Talks has been going now since 2020, and it is time to draw the Tent Talks podcast to a close. We decided that as a new season is ramping up in the world, we need to come to an end in order to think about what to do next. All good things come to an end. That is part of their goodness. And when we started Tent Talks, we didn't think we were going to start something that lasted forever. In fact, if you look around, sometimes the things that go bad and the reason why our institutions go bad is because they lasted too long and they got too big. It's good to know when to stop in order to keep the good thing you did good. That is our ethos behind ending the Tent Talks podcast. And Last Words is our series revisiting old guests, thinking ahead to the future, and generally finding ways to end well. We might not be making new Tent Talks podcasts, but we are keeping the old material alive and well. You can find this in three different places. First of all, the podcast itself is going to stay on this feed, and from time to time we will re-release old teachings as they become relevant once again. The website for tenttheology.com has hours of previous teachings and Bible studies and discussions that I've held, and I've brought them out from behind the paywall to be made available to anybody who wants them and would find them useful. And likewise, Tent Talks has been supported by patrons for the last four years. If you go to the Patreon page for the Tent Talks podcast, you will find hours and hours of more material which I am keeping going so that people can access it. Many thanks to the patrons who have been supporting us for the past four years. If you need to reduce or end your patronage, that of course is completely understandable and you don't have to feel bad about that at all. However, if you'd like to continue to support the Tent Talks uh, endeavor, we would be very grateful for that because the cost of paying for the websites and the subscription fees is going to continue even though we're not making more stuff. So your giving will continue to help keep the Tent Talks material freely available to anyone who needs it. Do send me an email, stephen at tenttheology.com, if you have any questions or any ideas of what we can do in the next season. But for now, we're going to hand over to Chris Marchand. Last week, we spoke to previous guests of the Tent Talks podcast to hear their last word. And this week... We're handing the reins over to Chris Marchand, who's been a long time and central pillar of the Tent Talks podcast. Chris was here right from the start, and he also is the editor of every single episode. In this episode, Chris is going to be talking to his guests and thinking about his vision of what last word might look like. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Well, this is my final word. 
I've decided to do something a little bit different, and yet a little bit of the same with my episode. I wanted to offer a continuation of my series from last year, Women in Church Leadership. With that series, I feel like I only just scratched the surface. I've wanted to have more conversations with female pastors and scholars in order to get a better understanding of the state of women as leaders and ministers within our churches. When I did my series, I actually had a long list of women to talk to, so rather than revisit with some of the guests I spoke with last time, I decided to broaden the conversation by speaking with two people I couldn't fit into the first series. I'll share who my guests are and also describe the format of this episode in a bit, but before I do that, I wanted to offer a last word of another kind. These are a few thoughts that relate to what we've done here on Tent Talks over the last three to four years. So thanks, Stephen, for the opportunity to do that. This is the last time you'll get to hear from me on Tent Talks, for a while and maybe forever. So I'm taking advantage of the situation and letting my thoughts out. This is my last word in two parts. Part one. Wrestling with nonviolence. While this is by no means new to anyone who's advocated for nonviolence or pacifism for any amount of time, something I've been thinking about a lot over these past years is how a stance of nonviolence makes you, makes me, utterly inexplicable to everyone else. They just don't get it. It's like we're advocating for the use of rotary landline telephones in a world of smartphones. Or maybe there's a better example. It's like we are advocating for the use of shovels in a world of bulldozers. A world where giant, powerful earth movers are always at our disposal. Which is to say, for the vast majority of people, violence just works. It gets things done. But nonviolence? How ineffective. Why use a tediously slow and powerless shovel when a bulldozer is available? Here's another aspect of this I've been pondering. Advocating for nonviolence to those who think violence is a solution is to them an act of violence. Isn't it strange how trying to redirect conversations toward nonviolent solutions makes people want to kill you? But maybe there's something to this. Maybe us nonviolent pacifist types, myself included, come across as elitist, self-righteous, judgmental blowhards. I know the ideas themselves are hard to swallow for people, but maybe we've earned our mass cultural rejection in part by the way we embody our ideas. Maybe something of it has to do with the snootiness and anger of our delivery system. So, what I've been thinking about is a more candid, vulnerable approach. I've always been struck with a quote from Stanley Hauerwas. I think I heard him say it in person, but maybe he said it in a book or an article somewhere where he explains that the reason he is a pacifist is not because he's so committed to nonviolence. No, he is in fact a naturally violent person. But it is for that very reason he has become an advocate of nonviolence. He encountered Jesus, he learned the way of Jesus, and despite everything raging within him, he realized that nonviolence was the way. Well, what if we all began taking a similar posture? What if every time we raised up concerns about war and abuse and gun violence and taking vengeance on political enemies, we always framed our position with the admission that we too are naturally warmongers, that we too are given to solve our problems with our fists or with a bullet. 
that when we are put into a traumatic enough situation, we too will probably lash out with rage until our threat is gone. Rather than elevate ourselves as the nonviolent ones, what if we placed ourselves within an ongoing recovery group? That we are recovering violence addicts, and as a people, we're only going to make it out of this one step at a time. And what if our conversations are about inviting other people into, what would we call it, Violence Addicts Anonymous? They're not going to listen to us anyway, right? But they're certainly not going to listen to us if we come across as thinking of ourselves as better than them. Recently, I've been diving deep into the works of Japanese filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, who is known for his pacifist stances and creating narratives without actual villains, but instead with people who gradually learn to not see each other as enemies. In his 2013 film, The Wind Rises, he made a bold move by creating a biopic about an aviation engineer, Jiro Horikoshi, who designed the Zero fighter plane, which was used during World War II. At the time, people questioned Miyazaki's decision, his motivations behind this. How could a pacifist make a movie about a man who designed a war machine? But I think perhaps we can take a cue from the master filmmaker and animator. You see, his whole life, Miyazaki has loved airplanes and flight. It's a love affair you can see on display in most of his films. He loves flying. He loves the idea of soaring through the sky. He loves these incredibly beautiful machines created by people that defy gravity. But if you watch The Wind Rises, what you learn is that why Horikoshi simply and passionately wanted to make beautiful airplanes, the military would always come along behind him and co-opt his technology as a way of dropping bombs and putting bullets into people. Come on up, Japanese boy. This is my true dream. When the war is over, I will build this. What do you think? Magnificent, isn't she? Let's take off. Instead of bombs, she'll carry passengers. But remember this, Japanese boy. Airplanes are not tools for war. They're not for making money. Airplanes are beautiful dreams. Engineers turn dreams into reality. Yes! Arrivederci! We'll meet again! Which would you choose? A world with pyramids or without? What do you mean? Humanity has always dreamt of flight, but the dream is cursed. My aircraft are destined to become tools for slaughter and destruction. I know. But still, I choose a world with pyramids in it. Which world will you choose? I just want to create beautiful airplanes. Bravo! A beautiful dream. Throughout the film, Miyazaki wrestles with this unsettling fact. And here's the lesson that I see. In advocating for nonviolence in the way of Jesus, what if we show people how much we've wrestled with these ideas? What if we acknowledge that in human existence, so much beauty is wrapped up in so much horrific ugliness? What if we begin to tell stories that address how enmeshed everything is, how much we ourselves are part of this too? And that's exactly why we need to continue advocating for nonviolence. 
Haven't we done this to each other long enough? I don't know what it all means, but myself, as I move past this podcast into other spaces, I'm looking at how to tell stories that don't pit us against each other, but instead acknowledge that we're all down here in the muck together, and that the only way forward is to keep talking to each other and to pursue a different way of living. Part 2. The Music Over these past four years, I have absolutely loved the opportunity to do nearly all of the music for Tent Talks. Stephen, thanks for letting me do this and trusting me with it. Hopefully you all have enjoyed some of it as well. As we wrap up the podcast, I wanted to say something about the music for the Final Word series. As I usually do, I tend to work in the moment, either spontaneously coming up with a song, using a melodic idea that's been bouncing around my head for a bit, or taking something one of our guests says as a jumping off point to capture a certain mood through sound. Well, in the case of the final word, the idea of composing in fourths was something that wouldn't let me go, as in the interval of a fourth. One of the ways people often associate the major fourth interval is with Here Comes the Bride. Bum, 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 bum. Sound familiar? In my own podcast, Post-Consumer Reports, I recently interviewed a jazz musician and composer who described how chords built in fourths tends to create an open, unresolved feeling. The thing about the interval of a fourth is that it's just two notes, and it tends to sound completely normal to our ears. But if you add a third note on top of the second, let's say a C, an F, and a B flat, well, things start to sound a bit off, a bit unresolved. So that's what I did with different variations for the music of the Final Word series. We are finishing up our podcast, again, for now and maybe forever. But the conversations still continue the life and work we are called to still continues. There's something beautifully unresolved about the work we've done together. It's finished, but it's not. Along with that, the podcast has basically been around for four years. We've had four main hosts, and now we're finishing up with four final episodes. So I don't exactly know what it all means, but here's some music with a lot of fourths in it, and also some regular old triad major chords. Some of it's playful, some of it's contemplative. Hopefully, something strikes you with it. Now on to my final word about women in church leadership. In this episode, I speak with a scholar and then a friend about what it means to be a woman ministering and leading in the church. As I did in the first series, I asked them both the same set of questions and then have an extended conversation that unpacks their initial answers. Lisa Weaver-Schwartz is a sociology professor and the author of Stained Glass Ceilings, a fascinating study into the cultures of two American seminaries, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Asbury Seminary, and how, despite their differences in ideologies, one complementarian, the other egalitarian, both institutions uphold male-centered structures of power. Her book is a case study in both seminaries and juxtaposes the cultures and the mentalities and the messages of each of those institutions. It's fascinating, and she offers a lot of amazing insight as a sociologist, but as somebody who has grown up and still is within the church. My second conversation is with Reverend Amanda Holm Rosengren, 
priest of Church of the Redeemer in Highwood, Illinois. Mother Amanda is a longtime friend and colleague. I served alongside her for a time as a co-music pastor at Church of the Redeemer while I was in seminary. As I did before with Reverend April McClure-Stewart, I wanted to interview a friend and a woman who has been serving in ministry for some time. In this episode, I give Amanda the final word. The first question I have for my two guests is, did you grow up in a tradition that ordained women to ministry or that gave women the opportunity to serve in some kind of leadership? The rest of the questions emerge from there. Lisa Weaver Schwartz starts off by talking about what it was like growing up in her home church. Please note there were connection issues throughout this interview, and I did my best to piece the glitchy pieces together. congregation that I grew up in as a child sort of understood that who does what, right? We never would have had a woman um, preaching or on the elder board, not because we talked a lot about, I mean, I don't remember sermons or Sunday school lessons about godly manhood or male headship or anything like that, but um, it just, you know, it just wouldn't have happened. And so I, I didn't grow up hearing women preach or serve in denominational or congregational leadership in, in that sense. But I did grow up seeing a lot of women taking religious agency and having voice in other ways. I think especially of, of the Sunday school classes that I was a part of. And these this was um, you know, this is back in flannel graph era where these these were spaces that were filled with um, just beautiful retellings of Bible stories, Bible songs. Women were often leading music and kind of doing more of the artsy things in, in the church community that I was a part of. And that's those were things that were really meaningful to me, planning the food, the kind of informal rituals of faith. And so uh, for me, it was my growing up was kind of a mixed bag in, in that sense. I didn't have the benefit of seeing women modeling, preaching, and ordained leadership. And I don't want to diminish that. I, I think my life and my vocational career would have probably taken a different different trajectory if if that had happened. So I, I do think that's significant. But for me at the time, it was kind of inconsequential to my faith development just because the practices and stories that drew me into faith and have kept me there were largely controlled by women in my childhood. So along those lines, who were some of your early inspirations for being a female leader in the church? So when I think about my kind of the early part of my life, my childhood, I mentioned uh, the Sunday school classrooms. Um, I had some some just phenomenal Sunday school teachers who who modeled a love for the Bible and and what I would consider serious scholarship of of the Bible in in you know in their own in, informal senses. So I think of a couple who you know they didn't have pulpits, they didn't have seats on the elder board, but they had they had those flannel graphs and the Bible story books, and they had a real love for the God of the Bible. And I'm so grateful for the stories that they gave me and the modeling of, of what it looks like to, to pursue and inhabit the story of redemption in, in the biblical text. And I think I'm especially glad for their their examples because it was probably, I mean, I was probably well into my 20s before I ever heard a sermon preached by a woman or uh, interacted with a woman in, in a meaningful way who was in kind of a, a leadership capacity in a church. In the meantime, when I was in, in middle school, one of my friends, his mother was a pastor and another at another church in our area. And, you know, I haven't thought about this for years until I heard your question, but I, I remember being 
bewildered by by this idea of a woman being a pastor. And I think I was especially puzzled because she was just a really great person. She was confident and compassionate and witty and kind. Frankly, just a lot of things that I would have wanted to be, I still want to be as, as an adult. And so I remember asking my mom kind of like, what, how does this work, right? That this woman is, is a pastor. I remember her sort of pastor. saying, well, you know, she, she, her husband is also a pastor. I think they were kind of in a co-pastor position and somehow that sort of, sort of made it okay. So I'm grateful, even that, even though it was a really small encounter early in my life, I'm I'm grateful for that encounter because I think it just did enough with my my, my own assumptions and, and and the categories. So thank you, Marlene, for if you're out there, <laughs> my 12 year old categories, I guess. So you know, kind of related to what the story you just shared, then maybe as you got into your young adulthood, did you wrestle with the idea of women being pastors? Maybe your own sense of calling or you're calling into academia or anything like that? Or was it something you just intuitively accepted and, and it became, it, it wasn't uh, something you wrestled with that very much? So my path, I think, is a little unusual in this sense, now, partly because I am in academia and not in vocational ministry. When I was in college and, and kind of going through this process of, of asking questions about what, you know, what kind of jobs, what kind of vocation I was going to pursue, it, it wouldn't have occurred to me to question the categories of, of male headship and, and I mean, what we would now call complementarianism. Um, and I think I part, part of that is that I went to colleges that were fine with me studying psychology and, and philosophy and even theology. I took a lot of theology and Bible classes. And so I think I sort of assumed that if my uh, if my community was willing to teach me about theology and hermeneutics and and spiritual development, that it would offer w- ways for me to participate in those things and um, and to serve in those ways. Now that turned out not to be true, um, but I didn't realize that until later. And so I think in the meantime, like nobody ever said women shouldn't study sociology of religion. Like I knew that you know ministry was probably off the table but so it it seemed like a convenient opening to study sociology and and go in that in that direction and and by that point i had some subtle and maybe less subtle frustrations with my own experiences so for where i was at sociology was a natural choice for me it allowed me to kind of press into the questions that i was having without like openly defying parts of my community and, and I did take eventually a decisive turn away from, uh, you know, sort of male headship ideals. But but for me, that came later. In order to process this at all, did you go into a major study of the scriptures uh, regarding their roles in the church? You know, did you feel a certain responsibility to really know your stuff? If somebody, you know, even as a sociology professor, but within a Christian university, do you feel like you kind of always have to have the answer ready? Like, oh, okay, here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to have to like say it. Or again, is it like something that you kind of live with a humble confidence of like, no, I'm okay. I'm assured of who I kind of, I'm I'm curious of how I have to wrestle with it as a male minister, but I'm also, I'm curious how women deal with this on a daily basis. So I think with this one, my answer is probably a little bit unusual too, because the ordination of women was never really a presenting issue for me. Now I did have a lot of kind of spiritual crisis points and and anxiety over theological questions. But this was more for me, 
questions about the goodness of God, the problem of evil, uh, the nature of the Bible's authority, sort of those those were the things that, you know, and I had it bad. Like I lost a lot of sleep over these things. Um, and I think if I would go through that stage of life now with, you know, what's happening in, in, in the world and and what's uh, the the resources that are available, I probably would have gone into the full-on deconstruction mode that that so many people are. But instead, I, I plowed through that by, by reading broadly, right? So I've read um, not only theology, but history, philosophy, sociology. You know, I sort of developed this new understanding through these new voices and, and ended up with, with a much more robust and better story of the Christian faith. Um, so that's, you know, that was that was sort of my, my difficult path. Um, and so what that means is by the time I realized what, what you said about, you know, that women have not been included in, in full participation in church leadership for a lot of church's history. But by the time I realized that um, in a meaningful way, I, I knew a lot about the church's history because I had done all this reading, right? Um, and so I knew that the church had often capitulated to empire and had given into a lot of ungodly power structures. Um, and I also knew that in its very earliest expressions, the church seemed to have no trouble um, elevating women. Um, so, so with all of this background, I mean, and I'm, I'm sociologically oriented, right? So these are things that are going to stand out to me and really be really, really meaningful. So really at, at one point, um, and I, I, I feel a little bit bad acknowledging this because I know that for some people, I mean, this question is really, really weighty and it's an important turning point. But for me, I, I think at some point I just kind of woke up and realized that I was surrounded uh, both in my my congregation, the faith community that I was a part of, and also in my my thought life, the the voices I was reading and hearing from, by by these deeply devoted, very very serious, um, and and mostly theologically conservative Christians who, pretty much without exception, just assumed that of course women would be fully embraced and included in leadership. So, um, I I didn't go through that as as kind of a transition process. Now I did go back later and do more reading and learning on my own. Um, but it was really an outcome of a much deeper theological and spiritual growth pattern. And I think because of that part of my story, I've never felt like it's my job to defend uh, the the position, uh, partly because there have been so many who've gone before me. I mean, I, I you know the historians, the even even biblical scholars, but I, I do tend to point more to historians because they have they're also oriented toward empirical data, which I think is important here. I feel grateful that that we have so much scholarly work to to rely on. And so, I mean, I'm often I don't know how often, but I, I am sometimes confronted with people who would like me to lay out you know this whole outline of why. I should change my position. You know, that's not my, I just don't feel like that's my my job. I, I am at peace with it. And I want people to lean into the full biblical story, the, you know, the fullness of the redemptive narrative of the Bible. I care more about that in some ways, but I say that knowing that I, I think this gender equality piece is a part of that. So as some churches, some denominations embrace women's ordination, and they move into further generations. What do you think? What do you think will happen? Will they always feel a need? Like they, they've got to have it down that, you know, we've got to be able to, to offer this or this kind of happened in your account of Asbury. Some people just want to move on. It's like, why are we still talking about this? Let's, let's talk about the mission story. It's kind of like, you know, they have that aspect of it. I'm kind of asking this. There's a dual prong here. And I've kind of been in both worlds. I've I'm very familiar with the with the Wesleyan Methodist world where it's just become rote, not rote, but it's like, yeah, we've accepted this. But then I'm also really part of a lot of evangelical circles that are still holding on to male headship and that 
women do not have a place within leadership. So as other churches, like I'm also part of Anglican churches that really have, uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of church for the sake of others. So I don't know, as, as we go through the generations, what do you, what, what do you see? Like, what is, what is your sociologist lens there? Especially as a sociologist, it's hard to answer because sociology is accountable to data and there is no data here. Right. Um, it's, it's going to be hard to know it's always hard to know what will happen. Nobody knows what will happen. I do think, you know, I think that questions like this, there's a lot of assumptions baked into them. And I think there's some worry, especially just in my experience on the part of people who are concerned about the infiltration of liberalism into the church. If we, if, if women's ordination is something that we embrace, then, you know, what else, what else is going to happen? What else is going to change? And and I think you know that that kind of a slippery slope is is very rarely a productive logic for churches to use to to move forward. So I I think you know there there is there is change though that that comes with with this transition. And I think like how important is it to to continue to narrate and to continue to defend right? And I mean so part of me like and this is where I have to just kind of leave my sociological hat aside and just talk in, in terms of someone who cares about the church. But I hope we never stop wrestling with scripture. There is just, there's not much in, in the Bible that is abundantly clear. Uh, and there's there's a lot of nuance and a lot of, you know, things we just don't understand because it's an ancient text. And and so I think that, you know, even if even if the Bible doesn't change and, and you know, regardless of what you believe about inerrancy and authority and, and inspiration, our interpretations of scripture are none of those things. And they're always going to be changing based on the context that we're in. And this is this is why Christians around the world and in different historical eras have come away from this text with such dramatically different expectations and assumptions and beliefs. And so, yeah, for something as 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 important as what does authority look like in the church? What is what is the nature of the human story? You know, how do we embody this this world? And and, and I think gender is a part of that. I, I think we will always have to be talking about it. But I hope that we can remove the embattlement and remove the threat and and begin. I mean, I think this would be my hope, right? I mean, I may be skipping ahead a little bit here, but I hope that we could have these conversations without the anxiety of you know what we might lose in the process. Uh, do you think that churches that ordain women will become increasingly progressive in their theology and social views? Um, and that on the other side, that churches that do not support women in ministry will become increasingly entrenched and isolated and diminished, even while in some ways they continue to grow. Part of maybe what I'm asking is, is and right now, Southern Baptists are the are kind of like mainstream, but are they? <laughs> and especially with the preponderance of sex abuse scandals, the ability of Southern Baptists or re reformed Christians to continue to speak into the, the ongoing conversation about Christianity, is I just see it becoming less and less. I kind of live in the middle of the anxiety of that slippery slope conversation. Is it an inevitability that churches that say, yes, we do want women to be our leaders and pastors, is it going to happen? Like they're going to now, in, uh, you know, in 20 years, they're going to be progressives and we're going to embrace everything. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, whatever, polyamory, not just LBGBT stuff, but, you know, it's everything. It's all there. I, I, I mean, what, how do you uh, even address that? And uh, maybe again, I'm asking from a sociologist lens. I don't know. 
Well, I mean, and yeah, and this is another one where I really can't answer as a sociologist because those like what if questions, like we don't have data, at least on 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 the specifics. Although, you know, you could actually gather data on this. I don't I, this I'm sure, sure of. It's way more complicated than this. I I'm a sort of simplistic causal connection between ordaining women and then the slippery slope to this sort of liberal black hole. You know, or or on the flip side, between the non-ordination of women and sort of thoughtless fundamentalism. I don't think either of those are are givens at all. I do think there is connection, partly because, you know, the church has been constructed. I use the language of male centering in the book, right? So this just means like over time, for whatever reason, right, many, many reasons, some theological, some cultural, the church has been a place that, you know, the leadership, the structures, the hierarchies, the everything that, that the processes have been constructed by men, right? And so, you know, just putting women into those places of authority, you know, I mean, we have to look beyond tokenism, right? A few women in those structures is not probably going to change much. But you, if you actually give women agency uh, to to make new things and to make changes, they will do things differently. Um, So I think like it's not entirely inappropriate to take very seriously the kind of changes that might come if women are given agency and voice. Um, I think, for example, a lot more of the unhealthy and, frankly, sinful power dynamics are going to come to the surface. Um, and I think this is one reason why we're starting to see more um, of these really tragic stories of spiritual and sexual abuse in egalitarian contexts. It's because partly because not that this is new. I think this is, you know, this is part of the human condition. Um, but women are feeling a little bit more empowered to do those things and to, to voice their experiences. And so I think we'll, we would see more of those stories. And that's a negative example. But I think there's also some really positive examples that have absolutely nothing to do with liberalism. Um, I think we would see um, more demanding versions of Christian ethics, maybe less concern with the finer points of doctrine and more emphasis on how are we caring for the poor? How are we living in community and caring for the vulnerable? For sure, more attention to the poor and marginalized. And, you know, I guess some some people would say that 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 package is sounds liberal to them. It also sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, I think I guess it depends a little bit on what you're concerned about and what your framework for liberalism is. But and just to bring it back to your to your main question, I, I, I don't think there is a necessary slippery slope between, you know, the, the ordination of women and and some of these other things that, that people are concerned about. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be changes. And I think I, I personally think a lot of those changes would be really positive for the church. But um, it's it's worth it's worth sitting with with that possibility. So on a related note, then a place like being in the Southern Baptist tradition, they are mainstream in some ways, but decreasingly so. And and again, I I guess I'm asking you to do a a lot of projecting today. Uh, Maybe I should have said, put on your prophet hat, you know, put on your (laughs) 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 prophesy. Yeah, use your your imagination. What do you make of, because... I'm thinking of Southern Baptists. I'm also thinking of highly reformed like Presbyterians like Douglas Wilson. They're prominent because they make a lot of noise, but I don't know that the, I don't know, you know, they're just going to become more and more cult-like as the years go on. What do you, what do you what do you make of their voice within American culture? I mean, I think it's hard for me to to think of that outside of the broader sociological realities of of what's happening in the American church. I mean, it, 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 this 
disinterest and disengagement from uh, congregational life, uh, distrust in religious institutions and religious authorities is super, super high and doesn't seem to be changing. Um, and I, I think, you know, part of it is is these, you know, authority figures, part of it is the, the authoritarian tendencies. And, and that's, a, that's a strong word, but I, I think, you know, I, I think we have to look at what people are reacting to. And a lot of times it is this kind of leadership and this kind of power that's being exerted by leaders. And so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, again, I can't I can't really speculate, but I taking this whole consideration, it's it's making me more interested in looking at sort of grassroots religion, um, which is hard for me to do because I tend to be an institutionalist. Um, I, I like the idea of denominational accountability and of denominational missions agencies. And so, you know, that's that's where I come from. But I think increasingly, if we if we want to look to the future and to encourage the American church in ways faithful to our, our you know broader tradition to the gospel and also viable in the American society with given all this baggage that we have um it, it makes me want to pay more attention to the house churches and the groups of, of friends who are living in community and and trying to raise their kids differently and sort of even informal networks that that are emerging I think those will become probably more important even as I mean I don't think those big powerful voices are probably going to go away. Partly because the church is so integrated with our our political moment, and there's you know a lot of confusion between religion and politics, and so I, I don't think they're going to go away. Um, but I also am really watching as a sociologist to see what happens. Okay, so you you've already addressed this a little bit, but can you say a little bit more about your hopes for the future? Well, when I think specifically about women, um, I think my hope would be that the church would empower women and enable them to discover their own stories and not just continue to try to find places in the stories and the processes and the structures that are already in place. Um, partly because of what I was saying a minute ago that, you know, the, the American church is, is in crisis. Like we need some new structures. That's abundantly clear. And I think um, not just for the sake of women, but for the sake of men and for the whole church, I really hope that women are able to use some of that prophetic imagination and utilize their own experiences to to imagine a better future in that in that way. Um, And I I think we see hints of this already, but it's going to take a lot more, a lot more work. I was really intrigued with your initial email with me. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of ask your own question a little bit. (laughs) And as this, you said, when we begin to ask these questions about women ordination, depending on our background, it can often become a distraction because the power dynamics still exist. I found that really, really surprising. I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I don't know, enlighten us, uh, help us to understand that picture. Now this does relate to your own research. And, and part of me was thinking as, as you were saying this is I was like, I went to a, a, an egalitarian Methodist seminary in the Chicago area. I mean, they were probably liberal moderate. And I, and I was wondering, I don't, I would say, I don't, I don't think I saw that there. I mean, women were in all areas of the, the leadership, but then when I read your book, I was like, well, I wonder if there's, you know, I was in my mid twenties. There's just things I wouldn't have seen or even paid attention to. So uh, help us to unpack that, how, even when there's an egalitarian setting, maybe women aren't actually given the proper place that there's still male centeredness. 
Yeah. So this is the story of my book. So I'm going to answer your question um, in, in those terms, if that's okay. Um, I The reason I know that ordination can be a distraction is because it almost distracted me. Uh, I went into this project, I think, you know, with there was some part of me that had the naive expectation that, um, so it's a, it's a I, I should say, a, a, a comparative study with one egalitarian seminary and another complementarian seminary. And I think I, there was a part of me that expected like, oh, I'll get to, store, to tell the story of how bad complementarianism for women is for women and how, you know, there's a Christian alternative and that egalitarianism offers this wonderful new way of living. And, and so I, I started and, and Asbury Seminary was the uh, the case study I used for the egalitarian group. And on the surface, they really foreground their egalitarian commitments. Um, they're embodying it. They have women on faculty. They encourage women to enroll and to seek ordination through their, their programs. And so, you know, it looked like a great case study. And in some ways it was. And, and in a lot of ways, they really are living that really well. But as I started talking with the women there and and men too, I started to see some really confusing and concerning patterns. We realized that something more is going on. What I realized is that you, if you fixate on the policies, right, of women's ordination, allowing women into into these uh, roles and spaces, you're going to miss things that are cultural and structural. Um, so, for for example, um, to give you a, an idea of what what the structure is that that we miss if we only see ordination, um, sociology talks about this idea of the second shift, which um, originally meant that you know women as they entered the workplace, um, continued to ha- have the domestic expectations like the food preparation that they had always done in the family back in the kind of breadwinner housewife era, um, even while they were also holding down the nine to five jobs that that men were also doing. And so it's this this double burden or extra kind of household familial labor. So some of the women that I met with expressed some similar experiences. One woman um, was a student. Her husband was also a student. And she told me that she was having trouble figuring out how to connect with some of the wives of her male colleagues and classmates. And she finally said, and this is just the best description of the second shift I think I've ever heard, but she finally said to this wife of her her classmate, everything that you do, I do, and everything that your husband does, I do. And so she was just like straddling this fence, trying to find, uh, trying to connect with another woman and really struggling to do that. Um, but also just dr- struggling with these th- this extra workload that that she had placed on her. And so what I ended up realizing is that, you know, even this egalitarian community, and, and I've seen this happen in other egalitarian communities too, you know, they've rejected the male headship in in the roles and hierarchies of the institution, but they they rarely reject or even acknowledge that the ideals, the cultural ideas of godly womanhood, are very much still present in um, in these communities. And so that's where you get this whole constellation of just cultural expectations that that women carry. Um, so you have to be feminine, but you know, not sexy. You're not that kind of a woman. Um, you should be attractive, but not beautiful because ministry is serious. Um, you should be confident, but if you're too confident, you're going to be accused of being entitled. 
You should be married because, you know, good godly women are married, their wives and mothers, um, but you can't be distracted by your home and your family. So you can't really talk about that too much or let that come in. Um, you have to be assertive, but don't be the B word, right? And all of these things, right? You have to be, speak for women. You're expected to be, you know, the representative for women, but, you know, you have to find a way to do it without calling men's understandings of the world into question. So all of these things, um, in in some ways, that's a part of the the churchly second shift uh, is juggling all of this, this kind of cultural baggage and weight, even as you're doing just the regular job that, you know, men carry without having to think about these things. Um, so there's, I mean, there's so much more to say, but at, at base, those are the things that can be so um, just deeply disempowering and deeply even dehumanizing to women if we, if we don't acknowledge them and they don't necessarily acknowledge, acknowledging uh, the question. I think one thing that really resonated with, with me is the comparison of colorblindness to gender blindness. Like, cause I have a decent amount of friends who think colorblind approaches to racism in America is the best answer because it, it brings us together and we're, we're all, it's an evil, equal playing field. It's like, okay, we're, you know, equal access to education and jobs and everything. You know, the, the best option is equality, right? You know, so, Hey, I'm colorblind, but what that does is it neuters and forgets the story of the Black experience in America and how any of the systemic injustices, you know, that have endured for generations. And so we forget about all those things because we say, well, we're colorblind now, so we've moved past all that. I, I, I see you doing something very similar uh, with gender blindness. It's like, we're all equal here. Is this, is, again, is this another cultural shift where uh, maybe an example that I can give is my wife does primarily the finances and I cook every night. I, co- I like I do all the cooking in our family. Uh, that responsibility is on me. And so my wife and I are just figuring out what daily responsibilities look like within our family. Are these egalitarian like ministry families? Are, are we just in a great shift? Maybe is maybe one question that I'm kind of asking so that again, Will these things sort themselves out uh, amongst more egalitarian people, or is 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 male centeredness very, very, very entrenched in American society, and and we don't know how to let go of it? I mean, I definitely think we're becoming more aware of these things, um, but I think you know, especially in churchly spaces, one of the things that I really hope came comes across in the book is that you know the church doesn't exist in isolation from the cultural spaces that it inhabits right so some of some of the problems that i i see some of the male centering a lot of male centering and and the the diminishing of women's voices like Asbury didn't create that egalitarian christianity didn't didn't create that like this is a genesis 3 world right this is like not surprising that un and unhealthy patterns exist. And I mean, I guess maybe I'm stepping outside of my lane as a sociologist a little bit here too, but because because I I do think that patriarchy and male-centeredness is a part of the fall theologically, I think it's always going to be with us. And so I, you know, I, and maybe that's too pessimistic, but I think we're always going to have to be in conversation. I mean, if it's not household labor, it's going to be something else, right? Like we always are going to have to be grappling with what power looks like in our homes and our families and our communities and our churches. And I think that's a part of discipleship. You know, I, I almost wonder if if the hope that we could get past it, not that it's misguided, but I, I'm afraid that it might distract us from the opportunity to 
to identify these patterns because repentance is a gift, right? It's a it's a it's an opportunity to to be able to figure out how to do things better, and and that's going to be a part of the church's responsibility and and role, I think, and until it you know until the next life. I, I have a really loaded question. This I, this is I don't know I don't know what to do with this one, but it, it's one of the mysteries for me, and I don't know if you heard in in my own series. I kind of like stepped out a little bit and said something that I that could offend people or like really be misunderstood. I called myself, what did I say? You know, I, some people say this, like I'm a egalit- compliment, complimentarian egalitarian or something like that. And that's like a boy, boy, that's a, that's a, you know, <laughs> I'm really stepping into it to try to say something like that. I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to gather is, is like, I have no need for male headship anymore. I'm done with it. But when I look at women and I look at men and I see the distinctives and the each what we bring, like, and, and this is where like, it's very, very strange. And, and we're living in a day of gender fluidity and we don't quite know what we think about things anymore. It's, it, I mean, I'm, I'm lost in the mix of it too. At the end of the day though, and, and I, I really resound with the, the, the one student that you talked to, you, you were like, you were like, okay, so what is femininity? And he was like, it's a, uh, well, uh, uh, I'm like, I'm that guy. Like, I'm like that idiot guy. I feel sorry for him because I would have said the same thing. And yet, <laughs> and yet at the same time, it's like, yeah, but th- th- there's femininity and there's masculinity. And I, I don't know, how, how do we respond to that in terms of, because this also leads to my little theory that I actually had the same theory as that other female student. Women are better pastors, right? Come on. Males, I mean, come on, guys. Males suck as pastors. (laughs) I just want to say it. It just feels good to say. And that's not exactly true because I also think men men have been conditioned to be these, you know, whatever these strong stoic guys. So I feel like I'm at the beginning of of a generation that it's like, come on guys, we can be emotional too. We can be emotionally intelligent and be kind. And I asked 12 questions at once. I guess I'm just curious of your response to any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I have a fun bit of history for you. The the word complementarian, um, we now associate it with the belief in male headship and hierarchy. It originally came as a part of what we would now call the egalitarian movement as a way of saying, hey, you know, there are differences here. They matter, but like, it's not about hierarchy. It's about, you know, complementarity, right? It's actually a great word. Well, the high, what I would call the hierarchists uh, have have taken it over, and we no longer have that association. But it came from I, I believe it was Gordon Fee. I, I would have to you have to check fact check me on that. I love um, Gordon Fee. Yeah, there you go. I All love right. Gordon Fee. Thank I know. You. There you go. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I thought you'd appreciate that. And your question about like you know, wanting different like what do you do? These definitions are so troubling and so problematic. Um, and so one thing that, you know, and and I work with, so I work with college students and they have so many questions about these things too. And one thing that I think you have to start by recognizing is that the definitions of masculinity and femininity, they're contextual. They're crafted for us by our cultural surroundings. So it's really like we don't know if there is an essence of masculine and essence of feminine. Like we can't sociologically, biologically, like people have tried to find the gene. Um, Every once in a while, there's a study that comes out that kind of suggests like maybe like exposure to hormones in utero or something, something, something. 
nothing. We just don't have anything definitive. I don't know. So we don't know if there is an essential category, right? There might be. Just the fact that we haven't found it yet doesn't mean it's not there. So like we have to hold that as a possibility. However, what we do know, because we can see it happening all the time, is that culture constructs these things for us, right? So the, the nature-nurture debate is still on the table, right? We, we just, we don't have a definitive answer to that. But what we do know is how how influential nurture is, how influential the families we grow up in, the media that we consume, the women have in shaping what we think of as masculinity and femininity. So, so we can't talk about the essence of being male or being you know, masculine or feminine, um, but we can't talk um, And I think that's where, you know, your, your assertion that like women can be better pastors that's an interesting one. And I think it's worth considering um, both theologically and, and I mean, there, there are streams of gender theory and feminist theory that suggest, you know, women, for whatever reason, you know, nature or nurture have different experiences in the world. And because of those experiences, yes, we're going to see the world differently. We're going to approach the biblical text differently. And that's actually good. Um, there's some really richness in that. And as you know, can women or are women better pastors? That's a fat, that's a good question, right? And I know, I mean, it's a little fraught and maybe a little bit of a joke when you when you frame it like that. But um, I think we have to remember that, you know, the, the idea of pastor as we've constructed it, that's also a cultural construction, right? It's not biblical. When I think of the, you know, and just in my experience in churches, when we talk about pastoral authority, pastoral leadership, it is leadership and authority. But when you looked at the New Testament and you look at the, the words and teachings of Jesus, we don't hear a lot about strong leadership or authoritative leadership, right? We hear calls to humility and sacrifice, service to the poor, attention to the marginalized. And what's really interesting is that these are feminine. Um, so women are already doing a lot of these things, right? They're not always recognized as pastors, um, but the social workers, the teachers, the, the women who deliver meals to, to homebound church members and new moms, people who you know, will, will drive friends and neighbors to doctor's appointments and do all this work, they are pastoring. And so there's a part of me that thinks, yes, women are already doing this, right? We just don't call them pastors. So um, in in that sense, yes, women women are better pastors. And, and of course, you know, again, we're not talking essence. We're talking tendencies. Um, I know a ton of men who are humble and sacrificial and empathetic and all of these things. Um, and they're very well equipped to be pastors. And I want pastors, you know, to do all these things regardless of whether they're men or women. But I do think it's an interesting question. Here now is my conversation with pastor and priest, Mother Amanda Holm Rosengren, with the same set of questions along with our own conversation. Did you grow up in a tradition that ordained women to ministry or that gave women the opportunity to serve in some kind of leadership? Not really. I grew up Baptist. At least, and I didn't know much about the denominational structure as a kid. For my first church was American Baptist, 
and later it was in Southern Baptist settings. So certainly in the Southern Baptist church, no, not so much. In, in elementary school, my American Baptist church in California had a female children, probably director. I don't think they would have called a woman a pastor. So she, my probably my first memory of realizing that women weren't supposed to do stuff in the church or that that was controversial was this um, children's director. I remember her preaching one Sunday in church. And it's it's funny, I, I was realizing this recently that I don't have a very strong memory, especially when in my childhood, but I remember this sermon, even like what she preached on, which is very unusual for me. So it must have stood out. And I also remember that my 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 parents having some discussion of disapproval that that she was preaching at home. So that was, you know, I, I think going into college, just just kind of accepted it that women weren't pastors and it, you know, it wasn't, I don't know, I hadn't spent any emotional energy on it, but no, I did not grow up um, seeing women leaders in the church setting. Then let's talk about first steps, whether this would be as a, a young person or even as you're entering into college, right? If it, if it never occurred to you before then, well, what were your, some of your early inspirations for being a female leader in the church? I'm, I was trying to think about that question because I, I feel like I experienced a call to ministry before I knew what I thought about women being leaders. And so I hadn't really been paying attention <laughs> to female leaders in the church. I think my consciousness of women in the church or not had grown in undergrad um, through some of my professors. I just, I just remember I had a, an English professor in particular, I was an English major, who was the first person I'd met who called herself a Christian feminist and said, if you think women should vote, like you're a feminist or you've benefited from the feminist tradition. So again, I grew up in, in context where feminist was a bad word. So I learned a lot from her. And I think undergrad was the first time I even heard the terms, you know, complementary, complementarian and egalitarian. Like I just hadn't. So I was like, oh, um, so I definitely started getting interested in the um, conversation. I feel like I'm still finding female leaders as my models. Now that I am a priest, I think my fellow female priests, especially the, those who were ordained earlier than me or who waited a very, very long time to be ordained as a priest. So a couple of the people in my own circles, uh, Karen Miller, who is a co-rector at Church of the Savior, Linda Richardson, who was um, before Karen, a co-rector. It's funny, I remember Linda was a deacon at the church that I attended, ended up attending in undergrad, an Anglican church. And so she was, um, well, I was going to say the first woman I heard preach, but now apparently the second woman, because this, this children's director as a kid was would have been the first. But I remember her preaching in undergrad and, be, and that, again, that's one of those things that, that stood out for me. So I, again, this is the question I don't have a lot of good answers for, because I think I've had, a lot, I've had good professors female professors, as well as male professors who were very, very supportive of women. I think that made a huge difference for me as well. In fact, I, I think I had more kind of men supporting me in my journey, first towards studying theology, and then in my ordained pastoral role that I even had women. Now I do have um, women who I feel support me and who I can can look to. Yeah, it's been I, not a lot of early people to look to. So when it came to you 
discerning through your own call to ministry. Did you wrestle with the idea of women being pastors and you, you know, being, being a woman and thus with your own call to ministry? Or was it something you intuitively knew you were called to? I very much wrestled with it, both as a woman and as a, oh, pastor, what? My story of call is, yeah, it, it, I was going to say unique, but it's not unique, but it feels unique to me. Maybe <laughs> it is unique to me. I was in a classroom in seminary because I went to seminary intending to study theology and go do the teaching PhD route. And I was in a, semin- in a classroom with a female professor. And just heard this sentence ringing through my head, you're going to be a pastor. This was like, you know, maybe my second semester in seminary. And it was one of those, it was sort of an internal whiplash moment, um, because that was nothing I had ever envisioned for myself. That had not been my plan. I didn't really want it. And at that point, I was not sure what I thought about women being pastors. I hadn't gotten that far, even even if though I probably would have considered myself more egalitarian at that time. I just hadn't like, oh, I hadn't done the, hadn't thought about that. So my response, (laughs) my response to that sort of phrase was, okay, God, if that is you, you're going to have to make me want it. And that was a long long process. So my, my call was very much, at least at first, a wrestling with, I think that was the Lord And what do I do with that? The call very much came first and then the wrestling with who I am and with the theological and practical questions too. That's the thing. It's not just theological. It's, it's, it's practical. It's like, well, I can experience this call and you know, no one's going to hire me. (laughs) Anyway, So there's, yeah, it was very much a wrestling trying to figure out what to do. So you partially doubted your call because of the culture that you would be called into. You doubted, where am I going to find a place that would hire me? Because there's there's other denominations or, you know, there I guess there are options, but then that requires moving to that denomination. So so part of it was the practical or the systemic doubt. Yeah, there there is that's just I think that reality kind of hit later. But even at first it was it was I really had an internal stigma against the pastoral role <laughs> because at the time, I've gone through a big kind of emotional transformation. But at the time, I, I thought, you know, anything remotely touchy-feely, I thought I was like, nah, that's not me. Like, I can do the intellectual stuff. Give me the give me the smart people, not the pastors. <laughs> what I thought. I have repented since then. So for me, it was, as, it was as much about like, I did not see myself as that type of person, I guess, or that it was, it was a, I, my, I had to have a revolution in how I even saw myself as well as then wrestling with the, okay, I could, you know, really like <laughs> professionally, like I had a plan. This was not the plan. And just, you know, what do I, what do I do? How do I, how do I follow this call? Once, even if I start to want it, then what? Okay. So that then wouldn't have to do with you being female necessarily, right? Like, so like I've known mm-hmm. some pastors, you know, some guys they were engineers, right? And w- when we think about engineers, we're like, well, they don't make good pastors, right? But, you know, here they are in their mid-40s or something, and they feel this call, and now you've got an engineer who's a pastor. Wh- yeah. Whatever, like, it-, it could be anybody not feeling like this is the thing that I want to do. Like, you and I, we kind of grew up, uh, you know, in academia a little bit, right? So you were thinking mm-hmm. maybe more maybe more theology and academia. Is that maybe something? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. right. 
yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to do the become a professor thing. And in part, cause those were the people who had invested in me. I hadn't had any pastors who were, were looking at me and, and calling anything forward at me, at least not, not until the, the church I'm at now, which is a whole other story. But yeah, so there was a lot of layers. So there's the like vocational layer of call and I'm not sure I want that. And then there, then the theological, you know, and even being, being at a seminary where I was a safe female student because I was in the more academic track. <laughs> if I, I think my, my experience with, in seminary would have been different if it, it was different for, for women who were like, no, I'm here to be a pastor, at least in my, in my context. So I kept my, I, you know, my seminary experience, I did not have some of the negative experiences. Some of the other female students did because I, I was on a safe route you know, in terms of the degree. <laughs> and for someone like me, you know, I, I don't like to go against what, you know, I don't, I don't like disapproval. <laughs> so I was very aware that in my setting, like, oh, this is, this is not a neutral thing. If, if I decide to be a, to, to be a pastor, not, not a, well, there's a lot of folks who won't, won't understand this or who won't um, embrace this with me. If, even if I can embrace it for myself. So that's, there's, there's both of those, those layers of who can I find who can I trust? Which voices can I listen to on this as well as, you know, the voice of the Lord and my own gut? You know, that's interesting to think about this in terms of displeasing those around us, whether it be parents or former pastors or current pastors or professors or peers and friends. I, I'm I'm very similar. I think maybe it's because I'm a I'm the youngest in my family and my my parents had trouble in their marriage, and I was always trying to like make people happy. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it is interesting to think about you didn't choose this because you like to ruffle feathers. Mm -mm. No. Oh, my gosh. No, I hate conflict. That's like still my growing edge as a leader. <laughs> yeah. So, no, not not something that I, I chose in order to be a revolutionary or because I wanted to rebel or no, it was it literally was a sentence ringing through my head kind of out of the blue. And then God being like, yeah, ha ha. Okay. See? And he has, I mean, that's, he has brought me to that point where I love it and I'm suited for it and feel that deep sense of call. But it started out like a, literally just this whiplash inside of like, what? Like, chirp, chirp, the little record scratch <laughs> moment. Probably for everybody called to the pastorate, the voices that speak into our lives are huge for um, good or for bad. Yeah, I wouldn't be in the pastoral ministry. Well, I don't know, right? I don't know. Like God could have used other people, but um, the people he used turned out to be really complicated in, in retrospect. So I think it's a, it's a good example of God works through all sorts of things and all sorts of people. And sometimes the people in our lives give us great good and then very complicated good as well. I don't regret, I don't regret at all the way in which I ended up as a deacon and a priest through the mentorship of um, someone who turned out to be more complicated than I thought. I don't regret that at all. I'm still grateful. I don't understand <laughs> fully, but I think it makes me, maybe, maybe this is what I can say is that it. It makes me more sober as I think about my influence now over young women and men who come into the church thinking they might want to be pastors, that that's a huge responsibility. And 
when we speak into someone's call, it's a mysterious thing. Because <laughs> God calls, like I take comfort that no, it was it was literally God who called me. And then a bunch of other people speaking into that along the way. So I don't know. It's a mis- I think call is a mysterious thing. And for women, especially, I think for, for women who want to be pastors or, or who feel a sense of call to be pastors, it's having someone, especially a male priest, who sees good, sees gifts, sees call, like that's a powerful, a powerful thing. And it also, it's and a vulnerable thing. I, Chris, I always associate you with the song, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. That song has come to mind so many times in this particular scenario. Anyway. I lifted the hand of God Almighty to part the waters and the sea. But it only took one little light to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as strong as we think we are. It makes me think about how just how difficult it is to keep things together, right? So, like in in middle age, it's hard enough to stay friends with people, <laughs> let alone to keep like community organizations functioning and everybody operating together. Um, I don't know. I, I just really, I really feel you on that. Um, my, my church plant imploded and I'm kind of glad it did in some ways because of all the pressure and stress it took to keep it going for so long, you know? So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I wish that I had known my worth. That's, that's one thing I think that I think, I mean, that's kind of a universal challenge, but I think women in particular and women in the evangelical tradition, when we have a role, feels like the best thing in the world. I, I wish that I'd had a had a better sense of like, no, I have I have gifts to offer, and I am worthy of being here on my own merits. I don't know. Gratitude is good, but so is no kind of knowing our worth before the Lord. Actually, that leads to my next question. One of the arguments for women in ministry is. You're good at something, so you should do it, just like every other profession, right? Well, if you can, if you're gifted and you have a passion and you've been trained, well, then you should go do the thing. It's really interesting within the Christian realm. That applies almost in, in 2023, that applies for everything other than women in ministry. All right. Mm-hmm. Women can mm-hmm. be astronauts, women can be president, whatever, but you can't do this thing. You can't do the ministry thing. So I get that, and I, I'm fully on board with that. The other side of this, though, uh, the arguments for women in ministry are. You got to know your Bible. You got to know your scripture. So one of the, I'm curious, in your process, I mean, maybe it's your own process or just trying to understand women being called and being able to take this role in churches. Did you go off and, you know, do all the scripture studies? Were there resources available for you? What was your process there? Because I guess it can kind of drive you insane if you're not careful, because it's like, I have to have the answer all the time. And then it's always plaguing you. Or did you feel like, no, I'm, I, I need to do this. I, I, this is important. I need to be able to have an answer. How, how did you approach that for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was discerning my call or coming to the point of being ordained was such a long process 
that I definitely, you know, some of those passages I sifted through in undergrad, like I remember, you know, for an exegetical paper, uh, taking one of them, not Timothy, I don't think it was, I think it was more related to marriage. And for me, you know, it is, if I came to the conclusion that scripture forbid me from doing what I was doing, I and felt convicted, I, I, I wouldn't do it. So that it is very important to me to feel like I'm on a solid scriptural foundation. I don't know that there was a time when I was like, okay, this is the year I'm going to, this year is, I'm just going to dive into all of them and figure it all out. I think it happened more piecemeal along the way. And, and um, in fact, we did a teaching series. Oh, when would it have been before COVID sometime where we invited just different folks in the church to, to teach on in our like adult Sunday school time to teach on a passage that was meaningful to them. And I decided I was going to tackle first Timothy two. <laughs> Cause I, I was like, no, I want to, I want to look into this. I've looked into it before, but I'd like to have a sense of to, to teach before the church of here's, here's how I see this. So I remember, I think it was in preparing for that Philip Payne's book, women and man, one in Christ, I think is it is. And there's been a few other, that one is just an amazing book. It's been helpful as I even refine my, you know, how do I view scripture as a whole, not just these individual passages, but what does it mean to interpret scripture, one passage in light of the whole? As the more I get a big picture sense of scripture, I think the more that the individual passages actually make more sense to me. And then, of course, in the Anglican world, there's scripture, but then there's also tradition and some other sorts of theology, especially around the priesthood. And so uh, William Witt's book is really helpful in that. That's That came out a little more recently. Yeah. So long story short, yes. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a passion for me now. And, and even in a bigger picture realizing, oh, there's like, I bring something. So here's the flip side of it is, yes, I want to do these. I want to do justice to these scripture passages and have a really clear sense of why I believe what I do and how I believe that actually, not just like, can I tolerate these passages, but I think scripture overall commends <laughs> what I do in my view. And that's why I hold it. But it's going to say the, the flip side of it related to scripture is realizing how then my experience at being a woman and being a woman in the church actually helps me interpret some things better in the Bible or with or bring learn new things, see things just from my own experience that some of the you know majority common common commentaries, commentators miss. Okay, I'll just give one example. I remember preach, preaching on the story of David and Bathsheba while like six months pregnant with my first kid and looking at the commentaries and being like, why is nobody wrestling seriously with the death of this child, you know, of Bathsheba's child that is taken away from them as punishment for David's sin? Like it's mentioned, but there's no angst about it. And I was like, I am pregnant with my first child. I have some angst about this. Um, there's something about that embodiedness that has opened up scripture to me in ways that are exciting. Um, so anyway, scripture, I'm an, I'm an evangelical <laughs> through and through in that, in that sense. Yeah. Wrestling with scripture and not just holding my, my nose at it, but saying, no, I think actually the overall picture of scripture is one that embraces this. I have a question about that, though, that I'm really curious about. So, you know, I've done a lot of research into Christmas and, you know, like one of the things that perennially comes up about Christmas is, well, you know, 
they were just copying off of the pagans, uh, you know, or, mm -hmm. or they were they were stealing from the pagans. And so I, I I did a whole bunch of research into that to try to figure that out and come up with an explanation why that's not really the case. The problem is, is I did that four years ago. You know, it's like, so Mike, I have a similar question. Like, sure, you did your sermon mm -hmm. on Second Timothy, First Timothy, First Corinthians or whatever. But if somebody like brings it up, like, can you recall like some of these arguments or, or do you kind of fumble a little yeah. bit because our brains can only do so much sometimes. Right? Yeah. I mean, how, how do you deal with it some, with when somebody, maybe if someone brings up a verse like that or challenges you? Yeah. I think again, my, my memory is not great, but I find that there are some things that the big picture things stick with me. I remember with that first Timothy passage, looking at the Greek and realizing, well, no, the, the main verb here is let a woman teach. A woman should teach. No, no woman should learn. Sorry, a woman should learn. Um, there's a there's a verb that's a, that's about actually affirming women and finding that the gist of it is more like if you're not qualified, don't teach. <laughs> like, so for me, as I think about the even the bigger thing is that like how many of the imperatives or the instructions in scripture are gender neutral. Like, there's a few that are that seem to have some some gendered component and it's good to wrestle with those but then there's other places if you just look at those i think you miss what paul's doing you miss what scripture's doing i think about all the other places where women are commended or said you know they're they are doing things they're prophesying they're um, praying in church there's phoebe there's junia there's there's all these you know junia poor old junia but there's all those other places where women are doing things and robustly so, and contrary to what that culture would have had them do. So for me, as I think about one of the hermeneutical keys for these passages is, okay, here's these restrictive passages, quote unquote, you got to make sense of those with all these other passages that have women doing some robust things. So, you know, you got to hold them both together. Does Paul really mean don't do X, Y, Z when over here he's saying, Yes, you're doing this and it's great and you're my co-laborers in the Lord. So that's there are there are those big bigger picture things. <laughs> I cuz I you know, I it is unfair, but I do feel like sometimes I do need to have the the uh, at least a few of those things at the tip of my tip of my tongue. So, a similar question but now expanded out more towards our churches and you know, where we where we actually worship and you know, follow after Jesus. Uh, as churches have embraced women's ordination and they move on into further generations, do you think they will always need to revisit and understand these scriptures and understand their reasoning of supporting women's ordination? Or as time goes on, do we just settle? We're like, you know what? This is this is who we are. This is what we do. And I'm just curious. Like, you can't really know, but I, I just I'm I'm curious if you have a guess about what might happen. Yeah. My gut is that it will, it will always be a struggle because of the fall <laughs> and the way that um, Genesis talks about what happened in the fall, where relationships between men and women are entirely disrupted from what they ought to be. It, you know, my, my view is that this is controversial and that it's hard because that's what sin has done. In the relationships between between men and women and power struggles and, and all of that. I don't see that fully going away until Jesus returns. Um, I don't know. It might like pop up in different ways. I hope that <laughs> women can keep being able to, 
to do what we're allowed to do now? I don't know. I, I obviously can't see the future, but yeah, my my eschatological view is, is is such that I feel like there will always be some sort of struggle where and women end up on the bottom, <laughs> you know, off and on. Anyway, I just I, I I wish that I felt like it would all just get better and better and better, and then Jesus will come. But I don't see that happening. I, I hope it can be more settled. I, at least the, if there can just be some spaces <laughs> where we can have freedom to flourish uh spaces in the world that would be good yeah i think the devil will keep popping up yeah you know it's interesting like when you think eschatologically that's a slightly different answer to the question but i was thinking like on a practical level Mm. like i'm asking my question almost ignoring the roman catholic and orthodox churches Mm -hmm. so what i mean by that is if they flip the script if, if like the catholic church you know a pope comes along and and he's like Listen, we've made some grave errors. We see scripture differently now. Women should be ordained to the priesthood and, and to be bishops. And mm. like, and then fast forward a couple hundred years after that. Well, then like mm-hmm. maybe they wouldn't like it, it would change the game so significantly on a global scale. But right now, what do we have? We, you know, yeah. we have Anglicans and Methodists and some Lutherans. And, you know, it's I'm, I'm yeah, saying yeah, if, yeah. If, if, if the big mm. guys on the block could change the script, maybe that would affect the overall culture of what we're dealing with. But I, but I see what you mm-hmm. mean, right? Like, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't see it as like a, a universal trend. Although I, I don't know. I think, I think there are probably some denominations where it will be a settled, settled question, right? It gets baked into the culture. It gets yeah. baked into the um, documents. Once it's into the systems, it can becomes a lot harder to remove. So there is some security in that. And yet even then, I don't know. I just think, I think there will always be, tensions and um, having to work this out together in the church. Next question is a can of worms. So just answer it how you feel, feel led. Do you think that churches that ordain women will become increasingly progressive in their theology and social views? Uh, And then also there's another side to this question. Uh, Churches that do not support women in ministry will become increasingly entrenched and isolated and diminished um, even though they might still be successful, but like kind of more on the fringe of a, of Western society. I know there's two big prongs to that question, but what do you make of the first one? The kind of the slippery slope question that women's ordination mm-hmm. is, is one aspect of that. Yeah, I don't, I, I prefer to unbundle some of these issues. So my, my question is, what does it look like for the church to be faithful? Faithful to what the Lord asks us to do faithful to trying to be the people of God the way it was meant to be, right? I think about that is that which planting guy is it that wrote the um the breviary of sin. I get the the I don't remember which I think it's Cornelius. Um he talks about sin as not the way it's supposed to be. So I think about that a lot. In my view, women and men as equal partners in every way in the world, in the gospel, in the church is the way it is supposed to be. I I feel the similarly around about something like race, that white supremacy was not the way it's supposed to be, and the there is some overlap I think in terms of white supremacy, patriarchy, these kind of power, very hierarchical power systems where some have power and some some don't. I I that's I see that those as as sort of linked principalities and powers, which the church should fight and welcome the dismantling of. That doesn't mean politically 
what I don't know. I don't know what exactly what that means politically. I try to I'm trying to separate how the church lives in the world with the sort of bundle of politics that we have right now. Um, I think the church is meant to be something other. And it's very hard for us to have imagination for that in our political climate right now. It makes it difficult for me to answer a slippery slope question <laughs> because, you know, where it gets tricky for the church is around, well, it's all tricky, trickier questions around sexuality and gender. Uh, I'm still doing a lot of the learning about that for my own self, not in terms of where I land, but in like pastorally, what does this mean? I also just don't, but I don't think, I don't think there's any inevitability of where you land on that, on those, on that, the complicated set of issues. For me, it's the question of what, how do human beings flourish? What were human beings made for? And our answers to that, I think that if something is real, we don't have to be afraid of it. And I think God is the most real thing that there is. I think if we have a theoretical answer to a question that doesn't fit reality, then there's something wrong. Either we've misunderstood reality or we're asking the wrong question, or we've come to an answer that actually isn't the right answer. So for me, I'm still look I'm still looking for what does human flourishing actually look like in the world? The way that God designed it related to sexuality and gender and women and race and, and all anyway. I don't, I don't buy the slippery slope argument. I think it's a fear-based argument. And our, our question should be, what does it look like for us to live the way God intended? And are we listening to the people who it actually affects that way? Maybe that's one other thing I, I would say is, you know, for me, experience has played some role in what I bring to scripture. The questions that I bring, it doesn't mean that that determines how I read scripture, but it's relevant. Well, the problem with the question, too, is every prong, every bullet point is its own. It's its own panel discussion. You know, it's 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 its own conference. Right. And so. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that bothers me about that question, not from you asking it, some people do is there's no there. It's it is a it's the, it's a fear based question as if I think we don't have to be afraid of exploring what's real, of what really matters to people, of what people's experience has been like, especially if there's things that have caused harm or things that are shutting down creativity and growth and life. I don't think, I think if we could be more curious and less, I don't know, less afraid of where something might take us. If we're following the Lord, we don't have to be afraid of where that leads. We want to be where the Lord is. So where does this leave you? My guess is most of you listening have already embraced women's ordination to ministry already, or you don't really care about any of this church hierarchy stuff to begin with. Which is to say, I probably haven't changed any minds with this series and an episode, but if I may, I thought I would offer a concluding thought about my lasting hopes for covering this subject. This past season, I've been thinking a lot about the book and film Killers of the Flower Moon, by filmmaker Martin Scorsese and the history behind it, documented by writer David Gran. Because of this, I've also been paying attention to the reactions from Osage and other indigenous American people. Despite loving the film, I think their reactions are valid and need to be listened to. At the same time, I also think that in many ways, that perhaps this film wasn't made for them. 
It was made for white people, for us to be challenged to reconcile with the past atrocities of our ancestors and how our country itself was formed. I could have a long conversation about all of that, and I'd love to hear from Native peoples. Honestly, I hope Native peoples are empowered and funded to tell their own version of the story, however they want to tell it. But how I mean to connect those feelings and ideas to my series about women in church leadership is that perhaps this series exists for men. I hope men who are in any leadership position within their church or denomination, as well as men who simply attend their church and want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, will find these episodes and listen to them. There are numerous books to read on the subject, and I'll post those in the show notes for anybody who wants them. But I have this small hope that people will simply find and listen to the stories of these women and wrestle in your own hearts what it might all mean for you and your community. During this interview, I've cheekily insisted that men really shouldn't be pastors. Did I mean that? Well, what do you think? If behavior, if actions alone were enough to disqualify men from the pastorate, from ministry, from church leadership, has enough evidence been amassed already for them to be disqualified? Now, I don't really want men to not be pastors any more than I want women not to be. That's not the point of all this, is it? To expel one group at the expense of the other? That's been going on far too long anyway, when it comes to women's place within the church. Instead, if actual healing is to be done, if male-centered power structures are to be dismantled, there is a lot of work to be done, a lot of hard conversations to be had. Men, do you have the fortitude, the compassion, the desire to understand rather than be understood, to sit with women's pain, their frustration, their long-suffering, their well of unfulfilled dreams, even their unrealized callings that God has placed upon their lives, callings that have been denied by us. But we first have to make the commitment to have those conversations, and to have them, and have them and keep having them. For now, this is my last word. But to conclude, here are Amanda's thoughts one more time. Especially right now in, in our country, there's this push and pull between some you know, demographic changes that have happened in a really short period of time. And there being a lot of energy in life that I, I would love for the church to embrace. Um, at the same time, I think there's at least large pockets of the white evangelical church that are going the opposite way in reaction to that. Well, I would hope that if the church is not following the Lord, that we would diminish. But on the flip side, sometimes things, you know, the the line is that things that grow the fastest are cancerous. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what will happen. I, I guess I feel, you know, rather cynical because <laughs> uh, there, I, I, there are so few spaces where I feel like, what I view as the way the church should be or the way that the church needs to be in this time in our country. I feel like there are so few pockets of those that I'm sort of like, I don't know, the church, these churches are surviving. There's people that, that want it. I, I wonder sometimes are, are, it seems like churches that aren't challenging their people do great. And, and, you know, that's a very simplistic way to put it. I just, from it, from my own experience of having um, had sort of a, an awakening, especially about race in our country, 
and trying to lead some conversations about that. It's easy for us as Christians to come to come to church wanting to have reinforced what we already think, what we already believe, and not everyone wants to be challenged or to grow. My hope would be that the church in our country, that churches press into the principalities and powers <laughs> in our midst, even though we might end up smaller. So I guess maybe my my answer to that is I I, I don't know, and I'm not sure that numbers is the best indicator of spiritually what's going on in churches. My dream, my dream for the church in our country is that we'd have, it's, it's, it's pockets. It's a pocket stream, not a big like sweeping revival dream, but to have pockets of places where men and women are serving in partnership together not in competition or in weird power struggles where people of color can flourish in the church alongside white folks. Again, white folks giving up our giving up some more of our power for the sake of the other. Where these pockets are kingdom shaped, not politically shaped. And where we're trying to figure out how as Christians, as believers in Jesus, do we truly Welcome everybody the way that Jesus did. Even as we, many of us hold on to maybe more conservative views of sexuality, of gender, like how do we do that? How do we, how do we become places where truly anyone can meet Jesus there and be changed? That's my dream, where we're actually known for our love. <laughs> Could that be the case? So I don't see that happening except in, in pockets. But I feel like that is, that's where Jesus is calling the church is calling the church right now. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leaving a good review on your chosen podcast platform. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tentheology.com.